You're listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg-Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. But if you have Bibles, we're going to be in the book of James this morning. If you're using one of those black hardcover Bibles uh, under your seat that Bob mentioned a little while ago, uh, James chapter 1 is page 1011. That's where you can find that, that text. Uh, it is actually felt like, I don't know if it's felt like that to you, but at least to me, uh, a really heavy couple of weeks, uh, certainly on the national and global level, uh, but I know also some of you that's even more personal than that. Um, two weeks ago, 10 people were killed in Buffalo, New York, by an 18-year-old who killed people with racist motives. This past week, as I'm sure many of you were following on Tuesday, uh, 19 kids, two adults, uh, were killed by another 18-year-old at an elementary school in Texas. The, uh, the Southern Baptist Convention, uh, one of the biggest denominations in our nation, uh, released a report confirming uh, just tragic and horrific instances of child abuse and cover-up efforts around that. Uh, we've seen other denominations and other churches have the same thing in recent years, but I know some of you have even connections to the Southern Baptist Convention, and that's hitting close to home. And then even here, people in the room uh, and people that are part of our church family uh, have lost family members, have been given really hard news, uh, have been immersed in just really impossible circumstances. And a handful of you uh, have shared with me or with other elders here over these weeks just how timely uh, a series like this, talking about the goodness of God, has been. Because as we, as we think about learning to trust the goodness of God, it's not just some kind of hypothetical, anonymous group of people that struggle with this. It's, it's us who struggle with this. We're the ones who struggle to trust the goodness of God, particularly when those circumstances come in real close, close to home. There's an old Puritan prayer book that maybe some of you are familiar with called The Valley of Vision. And in The Valley of Vision, uh, there's a prayer specifically written for pastors to pray before they preach. And it's been a it's a real gift that, that I've enjoyed and, and come back to over and over again over the years. I found myself actually there quite a bit this week. This prayer asks God to, to help the pastor in bearing an honest and worthy testimony about who he is, saying, God, let, let me bear an honest, worthy testimony for who Jesus is and what he's done. It also prays, God, give me the freedom to open the sorrows of your people and to set before them comforting considerations. And so as we talk about the, the gifts of God's goodness this morning, and we look here at James 1, um, that's been my prayer, that, that as we're going to open up some of our sorrows, some of our struggles, that this would be both an honest testimony about God and also a genuine comfort to our souls, that we would actually together have eyes to see the gifts of God's goodness, even through, even in the midst of the tragic and horrific and sorrowful things that we go through. James is going to write here, this is the brother of Jesus, writing to Christians who are intimately familiar with trial and, and, and suffering and evil and temptation. They're immersed in it. And so James isn't going to skirt around that. He's going to acknowledge it and address it. But he's also in the very midst of the same passage, he's going to say that God is the one who gives good and perfect gifts. And so if James can hold that together, if he can call the early Christians of the first century to do those things together, we're going to pursue the same thing uh, this morning. So let me pray for us, and then we're going to 
dive right into this. Let me pray. Lord, uh, you are the Father of all mercies. And so we ask that you would give us open eyes to see your mercies today, open ears to hear of your mercies today. We ask uh, that you would help us and prepare us even now by your Spirit to receive the gift of your Word. And we even acknowledge this morning, your Word is a gift. That in the midst of whatever life entails in our own personal lives or the broader national and global scale, uh, that you have not left us without a witness, that you have not left us to ourselves, but you have spoken and revealed yourself to us and come near to us. So help us see your goodness today. Remind us that you are good and help us see it. And we pray all that in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to listen now with open ears to this book that we love. This is James chapter 1, and I'm just going to read verses 12 through 18. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Verse 16, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. That word means siblings in the original language. So my beloved brothers and sisters, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. This is God's word. This morning with the the time that we have, let's uh, look at this text in two parts. Let's look at what God doesn't give and then let's look at what God does give. What God doesn't give and what God does give. So first, what God doesn't give. We only read a small portion of it, but if we were to read the whole chapter of James chapter 1, James is opening the letter talking about trials of various kinds. Uh, And it's not difficult for us from historical context, but also just our own lives, to imagine what that might include. There's the trials of persecution, and especially in the first century, that's what a lot of James's readers were going through. There's also physical illness and pain. Uh, There's mental and emotional anguish. There's the loss of a loved one. There's the loss of material resources, the loss of finances. On and on we could go. And and the baseline assumption of the Bible, the baseline assumption for, for God's people throughout generations, is that God himself is actually behind these trials. Sometimes it seems like God's really directly behind them. He's very actively bringing those trials and causing them. Other times when we read Scripture, it seems it's more indirect, It's more that God is allowing things to happen and choosing not to intervene and not to stop them. But the baseline assumption of of the word of God and the people of God is that nothing that happens, happens apart from him. Because his audience then is experiencing so much trial, James wants to to clarify here something really important, that, that though God is behind these trials, he is not the one tempting people to sin. He's not the one tempting people to sin. So look again there at verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. There are two pieces here 
directly related to the goodness of God, as we're in a series about the goodness of God. First, that, that God himself cannot be tempted by evil. God is only and always good. We used the, the, the Maxwell House coffee slogan last week, right? Good to the last drop. God is only and always good. He's holy and perfect. Evil is not appealing to him ever in any way like it sometimes is appealing to us. And temptation has no power over God. And then the second part there, verse 13, not only is, can God not be tempted with evil, but God tempts no one. Our temptation to sin does not come directly from God. That, that would also be completely contradictory to his goodness. You heard Michael describe it earlier as he was leading us through liturgy. The one who created the world and called it good, the one who created us as his image bearers and said it was very good, is not baiting us to do evil. If you've watched uh, enough lawyer shows over the course of your life, or even if you've not watched the lawyer shows but just seen lawyer commercials in the middle of other shows, then you're probably familiar with the concept of entrapment. Entrapment, it's pressuring or inducing someone to do something illegal so that you can then bust them for doing that illegal something. It's trying to get them to to do something wrong. Uh, I think, this is tragic but true, I think that's a deeply held impression about God that a lot of us carry around with us. A lot of people carry around this faulty assumption about God that God's like that, that he wants us to fail, and he's even goading us at times to fail, and he's just waiting, ready to, to pounce when we do. You, do you remember the, the beginning of Beauty and the Beast, at least the movie version of it? We think about God sometimes a little bit like the enchantress at the beginning of Beauty and the Beast. This enchantress comes disguised as the, the unattractive old beggar, and the prince in this castle is revolted, turns her away. And then there's what? Then there's the big reveal, the gotcha moment. I'm not an old beggar woman after all. I'm actually a beautiful enchantress. You're vain and arrogant, and now you get to spend the rest of your life disfigured as a consequence because I caught you. And we, we think that God operates like that sometimes. Like he's just waiting for us and even baiting us to do something wrong. And James is saying here, that is not what God's like. He isn't into entrapment. He isn't baiting you into and then setting you up for these gotcha moments. Because actually the thing is, God doesn't need to do that. We do that all by ourselves. Verse 14, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by what? By his own desire. There's there's something really deep within our nature as human beings that desires evil. That, That seeing the good design of God actually wants to rebel against it, wants to to go the other way. And the Bible often refers to those desires, this part of us, as our flesh. If we were to zoom out a little bit and take in the whole counsel of God, the whole uh, entirety of Scripture, the flesh is one of three of the great enemies of God and his people. There's the flesh, these, these evil desires that remain in us. There's the world, that's another one, the systems and the people that remain opposed and entrenched against God. And there's the devil or Satan, the flesh, the world, and the devil. Now, James here is not delving into the other two, the world or the devil. But here's the point. Who is responsible for evil and sin in the world? Who tempts us to do evil? James is saying very definitively here, it's not God. And and moreover, 
that though Satan and the world are powerful entities and that they're certainly involved in the mix, at the end of the day, actually, the responsible party is us. It's me. We are enticed by our own desire. And why that's important for us to see in a series about the goodness of God is because one of the primary reasons that we will question the goodness of God is because we don't question our own goodness. We just assume that that we are good and we don't question that ever. One of the reasons that we struggle to trust God's goodness is because we, we trust our own goodness implicitly and way too much. We think that of the two of us, of me and God, that actually I'm the one inclined to do good. And the reality is, left to myself, I'm far more inclined to do evil. And James knows here, for his original audience, and by extension written for our benefit for us, that in times of trial, we are going to desperately need to come back to this recalibrating, reorienting truth over and over again. That between me and God, he is the good one. Between me and God, he's the good one. And when it comes to sin and evil and temptation, God is not out there trying to trip you up. It's actually you that are trying to trip yourself up. That God is not trying to weed you out, that we weed ourselves out. That that God is not trying to destroy your faith. In fact, between the two of us, between me and God, I'm the only one qualified to do that. Now, even when we're we're honest that God is the good one, far more good than, than I am, there's still always going to be something really difficult and really mysterious about this. At some point, when we put our circumstances up against the nature and character of God, we're going to grapple with deeper questions like, well, then why does sin exist at all? Why, why, does, why did God allow sin and evil to enter the world? Why didn't he just stop it? Or maybe you can think about it this way. Why is the story of the world, creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Why is the story of the world not simply creation, the end? Or not even really the end, I guess. Creation, dot, 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 forever. Why is that not the story of the world? And when we get get to those questions, and we should wrestle to get to those questions and wrestle with them, we're never given the complete or completely satisfying answer. Ultimately, the Bible is going to tell us that the answer to those kinds of questions belongs to him, that that it's above our pay grade. At the same time, as incomplete as it might be, where James is actually going in this text does piece together an answer. Not the answer, not one that's completely satisfying, but an answer. Namely, that the contrast between us and God serves to display his goodness. The contrast between us and God serves to display his goodness. That that because we actually know evil and sin and death, because we've seen it, because we've lived it, because we've contributed to it, we're actually primed to long for and to perceive God's goodness infinitely more than we otherwise would. And as we see what God doesn't give, that he doesn't tempt or entice or entrap, we actually get to see even more clearly what God does give. And that's where James goes next in this passage. If first we've looked at what God doesn't give, then second, let's talk about what God does give. And in verse 17 there, he writes, every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. He's saying there, everything that is truly good, everything that is perfect comes from God. That's what God gives. 
And then just to make sure that we don't settle for that as an abstraction, or even worse, that we would settle for that as an empty cliche, James has actually saturated this passage with examples of God's good and perfect gifts. What are they? What are they? Let's look at just a few of them. One is, and this one is maybe the hardest one and the most counterintuitive, one is actually the trials themselves, the gift of trials. This is, as I said, counterintuitive. It's really hard to cling to when you're in the midst of an intense trial. But in the long view, in the ultimate view of things, the deep informative work that trials do in us actually make them a gift from God. If we had read a few verses earlier in James 1 verse 2, we would have read, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Why? Well, James says, For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So trials are a gift because they produce steadfastness. And that word in the original language, steadfastness, means to successfully carry a heavy load for a long time. To successfully carry a heavy load for a long time. I don't think I have to convince you of this. Life in this world is a heavy load. It's a heavy load. God have mercy for some of you sitting in this room this morning. It's an unbelievably heavy load. And you're feeling almost crushed by the weight of it right now. The only thing that can adequately prepare us to bear up under the weight of life and to carry it for the duration of our lives is steadfastness. And we need a way to grow in that. We need the trials that actually give us a chance to gain the steadfastness. So I really want you to hear from me this morning, men and women, Trials are not God trying to weed you out and destroy your faith. Trials are God trying to root you more deeply in him. They are God trying to make you steadfast, the full effect of which is to make you perfect and complete. God is unbelievably wholeheartedly committed to your sanctification. He is so committed to you enduring this life and coming out the other side looking like Jesus. And so in trials, one of the things that God is doing is he is exposing the impurities, so that he can get rid of them, so he can burn away, as it were, the dross, the excess, the stuff that remains of our flesh, so that all that would remain after that is pure gold. And you think of a man like Job and what trial and suffering looked like for him. It was nothing light. He writes that in Job chapter 23. He says, when God has tested me, I will come forth as gold. It's in that sense that trials are a good gift from God. Now, just in terms of of how we walk out life with with each other in community, when you're trying to walk alongside someone that's going through intense trial, impossible circumstances, please don't make this your opening line. Like, hey, I'm so glad you're, the trials are a gift. Really glad you're going. Please don't do that. You might get slapped and you would definitely deserve to be if you didn't get slapped. So don't open with that, but help each other see that trials are a means that God is always using to do this deeper work in us. Trials are God forming us and forging, really, us into something more steadfast, more purified, more conformed to the image of Jesus. A second good and perfect gift that James writes of here is the gift of eternal reward. Verse 12, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. Why? Because when he stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. The crown of life. Uh, I think in some of the the theological groups and tribes that most of us come from and like to hang out in, we're too afraid to talk about eternal rewards sometimes. 
Uh, We're too afraid to avail ourselves of the gift from God that this really is. And on the one hand, I get it. I get it. We we don't want to follow Jesus with this what's in it for me mentality. We don't want to love the gifts more than the giver. We, We want to follow Jesus because this is true. And we want to follow Jesus because it's worth it to follow Jesus. So I completely agree with all of that. But we should not try to be more spiritual than the authors of Scripture. And the authors of Scripture, Peter and Paul and James here, they are motivated substantially by eternal rewards. It's a huge part of how they endure the hardship and sufferings of their lives. And so Paul writes in Romans 8, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with what? With the glory that is to be revealed in us. Future looking orientation there. He writes in 2 Corinthians 4, for this light and momentary affliction. And if you know anything about Paul's life at all, that's the understatement of the millennium, that his, that his afflictions were light and momentary. This light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. See, the the Christian life actually says to you, you can endure whatever comes in this life and the loss of any blessings that you might lose in this life because the reward is actually not here, it's there. It's not actually your best life now, it's your best life later. And it's always been that way. No matter what this life looks like for you, God has promised, James says, to give you the good and perfect gift of eternal reward. We need to avail ourselves of that and cling to that when circumstances are hard in this life. A third gift is the gift of constancy, consistency. Verse 17, James writes that God is the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Father of lights is, is pointing back to God as the creator, the one who spoke these heavenly lights, the sun and the moon and the stars into existence. God is the creator of all things and as we read in Genesis chapter 1 a couple weeks ago when Bob was preaching, that refrain, all things that he created are good and very good. Now what's more, James is saying here, God is not just the father of lights, he's unchanging. Or to use the, a big theological word, he is immutable. He does not change. The God who made the world good does not then pivot and start to produce evil. He he made the world good. He continues to do good. He is good. He will always be good. See, we we think God is as changing as our circumstances. We, we, We tend to evaluate, as I mentioned last week, we tend to evaluate God through those lenses, but it's actually you and I who are constantly changing. In fact, every created thing undergoes change rocks and oceans and animals and people and even those heavenly lights that God spoke into existence. But as the uncreated one, only God is unchanging. He is the one constant. And that all by itself is an incredible gift that he is constant. It's an incredible gift. Why? Because when trials come in our lives, when circumstances press in around us in life, it throws us into this crazy spin I don't know if you've seen any of the movies where like astronauts are preparing to go into outer space and they put them in this machine that puts them in this crazy whiplash spin and they have like 30 seconds to, to right themselves out of the spin. That's what life feels like sometimes. When up is down and people who have been friends for a long time, all of a sudden you feel betrayal from them and they almost feel like they've become enemies or things that you've counted on to always be there for you in your life just get ripped out from under you. When that happens in life, we need somewhere to look to get our bearings. 
We need solid ground. We need a, a fixed point. And so what a tragedy it is that so many people try to make a fixed point out of something that is as flexible, that changes as much as they do, if not more. God is the one constant, and that gives us a place to turn. It gives us a place to look, even when we don't have answers for why we're going through something or why something is the way it is. It's why the psalmist can say in Psalm 123, to you, God, I lift up my eyes, you who are enthroned in the heavens. And not, and not only that, but I'm going to keep looking to you. Our eyes will look to you until you have mercy upon us. It's why in 2 Chronicles, when he's surrounded by enemy armies all around, just an impossible moment in his life, the king Jehoshaphat can cry out, we do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. That, that's a prayer, men and women, to just get deeply into your soul for the times in your lives that you just don't know what to make of the circumstances playing out around you. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. And we can pray that way because God is constant. He is the fixed point. He's the father of lights who does not change, and his constancy is a gift. One more good and perfect gift that James mentions here. It's the gift of rebirth. Rebirth. Look again at verse 18. Of his own will, God brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. And this is really where the contrast between us and God serves to display his goodness. I don't know if you heard it when we read it a little while ago, but there are two kinds of birth mentioned in this passage in James 1. Our flesh, our desire, conceives and gives birth to what? To sin. And then sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth or gives birth to death. But God's birth, on the other hand, verse 18, is a rebirth. It is a, a rescuing from the corruption and from the condemnation of sin. And it's the beginning, James says here, the first fruits of God reconciling and restoring the world to himself. James writes here that God's rebirth comes by the word of truth. And the apostle Peter actually spells that out in a little more detail when he writes in 1 Peter 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be what? Born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So here's what James is saying. You and I give birth to sin and death, but God gives birth to life and hope. And when we trust in the death and resurrection of Jesus, we are reborn. We are no longer enslaved to sin. We are no longer subject to the whims of those desires of our flesh. We become new creations where the old is gone and the new has come. And God does this incredibly of his own will. Not because he was obligated to, not because he had to, but because he wanted to. And of all of the good and perfect gifts that come from God, this rebirth is at the center. It's the one, it's the gift of God that actually helps us to see all of the other gifts more clearly. When we are reborn to a living hope, trials are no longer pointless. They are actually God's way of purifying and perfecting us. When we are reborn to a living hope, we actually don't need the circumstances of our lives to be a reward for us. We don't, we don't have to count on this life rewarding us because God has promised eternal reward. And when we're reborn to a living hope and we recognize that God has done this, not because he had to, but because he wanted to, well, now we can actually begin to trust his heart. 
now we can actually learn to trust that he really is good. The unchanging, constant God is the one who gave his son for our salvation. And if he has given that gift, if he has given that good and perfect gift, now that he has, how will he not also graciously give us all things? How will he not give other things that are good and perfect gifts? As one author put it, we owe our very salvation to God's will so we can surely entrust all lesser items to him as well. See, if this is what God does of his own will, if he brings us forth, if he causes this rebirth, if that's what God does, we can trust him with everything else. This author continues, because God is single-minded in giving only good gifts, we can be single-minded in following him. And so I want to leave you this morning with James's words here from verse 16, where he makes this appeal, he makes this plea with his original audience. And he says, beloved brothers and sisters, beloved brothers and sisters, do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. In times of trial, there will always be temptation. And maybe the strongest, maybe the most deceitful kind of temptation is for us to allow our circumstances to dictate our view of God. And we have to remember, and James is writing for that reason here, who is it that gives good gifts? Who is it that wants the absolute best for your life? Even when it doesn't seem that way, don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. It's God who wants the absolute best for your life. And so when you question the goodness of God, learn to question your own goodness even more. When you struggle to trust God's goodness, learn to to distrust your own goodness that much more. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. So in the midst of your sorrows and your hardships, may you have eyes to see the gifts of God's goodness. Amen. Amen. Let me pray for us. God, we confess that we need grace to see your goodness. And we confess that we are inclined to unquestionably assume that we are good and to make ourselves that fixed point, which is so tragic because when our lives get upended, we have nowhere to look. So thank you for being the constant God, the father of lights who does not change, for giving us a place to look. And I pray even as we get to celebrate each and every week and coming to this table, that at this table, we would see you as that fixed point. We would see the good and perfect gift of your goodness that you did not spare, but gave your only son. Didn't seem good from people looking in at that from the outside, but it was truly good. It was our hope. It was our salvation. You are the God who gives birth to life and hope. And so we come this morning longing for grace to see your goodness, longing to feast again on the grace that you have shown us. So meet us by your spirit, strengthen us. We pray that all Jesus in your name, amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.